Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The philanthropy world is complicated. Funders, the funded, donors, and just people who wonder where the money goes. Here in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Foundation has been sitting near the center of a vast network of resources for 75 years. Over the decades, it's been a key incubator or supporter of so many institutions. The Council for Civic Unity, the Center for Independent Living, queer organizations, the Latino Community Foundation, Hope SF, KQED, Given the scope of our urban problems, we wanted to sit down with Fred Blackwell, who's led the foundation for almost 10 years. On this Giving Tuesday, what's the role of philanthropy at a time when inequality has made life so hard for regular people? He's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's Given Tuesday, which is one of those new holidays on the calendar. It's a time when many nonprofit organizations and charities ask for financial help. And here at KQED, we, of course, rely on listener support. And just want to thank you again for the way you all came through during our last pledge drive. But, of course, the relationship of philanthropy, especially big foundations, to society is a complicated one. You know, uh, Here at the station, our very first grant came from one of those, the San Francisco Foundation, in 1953. And they've supported us many times through the years. So on this Giving Tuesdays, we mull what it means for us to be listener-supported and to be supported by philanthropy and what it means for many people across the Bay Area to work for and with foundations and nonprofits. It's time for a check-in on this world. It's been an up and down near decade for the Bay Area with a booming job market, explosive displacement, giving way to the doldrums of the pandemic, as well as renewed calls for racial justice. And now this uneasy new normal, which doesn't seem sustainable. For those past 10 years, the San Francisco Foundation has been led by Fred Blackwell. I first interviewed Fred, not about his work as the head of the San Francisco Foundation, but about his time as a young man new to the organization in the late 1990s, carrying the weight of a revitalization project in Oakland. After stints with the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency in the city of Oakland, Fred Blackwell returned to the foundation in 2014 as CEO. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Pleasure to be here. So the foundation was founded in the mid-century. How do you see our present moment in the Bay Area against that kind of long arc? Man, that's a a great question. Um, You know, when the foundation was started, it was in 1948, and the the Bay Area and the country was really coming out of the recession. Uh, And, you know, we were started by uh, three really forward-thinking philanthropists and 
uh, business leaders and, and public servants. Um, uh, Daniel Koshlin was the head of Levi Strauss at the at the time and was the first fa- was the first uh, board chair for the San Francisco Foundation. But he was really joined by two really strong women who were public servants in the mm-hmm. Bay Area. Uh, one woman named Leslie Ganyard, who at the time was the uh, head of the uh, Rosenberg Foundation uh, here uh, in in the city, but also before that, really led the what would be called now the California Employment De- Development Department, huh. uh, and re- led that uh, department during a time when we were coming out of the uh, Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, another woman uh, named Marjorie Elkis, who was the head of the Columbia Foundation at the time and had a public servant background in child welfare. And so uh, those two women, and she was leading the uh, the Columbia Foundation at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So these were two women who were leading private family foundations, uh, but saw a need for community philanthropy. Uh, and that was the kind of the genesis of the San Francisco Foundation. Yeah, so for those for those who might not be yeah. you know familiar with what like what's the difference between a Gates Foundation and you know San Francisco Foundation or Silicon Valley Foundation? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, we're actually I would describe cousins to some place like the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is also a community foundation. Uh, but there are a lot of different kinds of philanthropic institutions that kind of serve the community. You have corporate foundations, you have private foundations. Uh, you have family foundations like the Gates Foundation. Um, but what community foundations do and what the San Francisco Foundation was envisioned being uh, was a vehicle for community philanthropy, for people to really um, pool their resources uh, and to create an institution that was not about necessarily uh, the interest of the philanthropy of a particular corporation or a particular family, uh, but really about meeting the needs of a specific community, and in this, this case, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we're called the San Francisco Foundation, but we actually have a regional footprint in mm. the Bay Area. So in the East Bay, we serve Alameda and Contra Costa counties, and along the coast, we're Marin, San Mateo, and San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, counties. And the idea here uh, is that philanthropy should be accessible to everybody. Uh, You shouldn't have to have, uh, you know, a major corporation that you ran or uh, be tremendously wealthy to engage in philanthropy. Uh, You can be a donor at the San Francisco Foundation for as little as $10,000. And that was really the vision uh, for community foundations. We are 75 years old, but we are not the oldest. The oldest is actually in Cleveland. They uh, are well over 100 years old Mm -hmm. now. So how has that funding evolved over the time uh, that not just you've been in charge, but the, that the foundation has been around? I imagine it's not just a big stack of $10,000 donations. I imagine that there are large donors to the San Francisco Foundation. Yeah. So um, there are really two ways that we engage in, in philanthropy in the Bay Area. One is that we have a pretty substantial endowment. Uh, and so our endowment size is about probably close to $800 million, depending on kind of what the market is doing. Uh, And that endowment is made up of 251 different trusts, uh, people who have left money to the San Francisco Foundation in their wills, bequests, things like that, life insurance policies, all kinds of ways that people have left money to the San Francisco Foundation because they believed in the mission of the organization. The other way that people engage in philanthropy is we have living donors who actually um, have funds with us 
uh, and we act as a platform for their philanthropy and actually in some cases provide them with advice. That can be as small as $10,000, and we have funds that are as large as tens of millions of dollars. Hmm. Um, We have about probably 600 different funds representing 900 different individuals in the Bay Area. Wow. So, you know, the region has become just wildly wildly wealthy over the last, you know, let's say call it 30 years, 40 years, so much wealth in the region. Would you say that the philanthropic ecosystem here reflects those kinds of resources? You know, it's a, that's a really good question. Um, We have an area here in the, in the San Francisco Bay area that is actually quite dense uh, in terms of philanthropic activity and organizations. We have lots of family foundations here uh, in the Bay Area, uh, corporate foundations. Uh, we have private foundations like the California Endowment. It's mm-hmm. statewide, but also gives uh, a lot locally. Um, but there's always room for more. Uh, you know, the, the needs in the Bay Area are intense. As you have described, the, the distance between those who are low income and extremely wealthy is large and continues to grow. Uh, and what we've also seen uh, is that the access to the prosperity, the wealth, mm-hmm. the ha- large levels of income that are being generated uh, in the Bay Area are actually um, limited. Uh, and for a lot of people, it's limited based on something as simple as their address, uh, their fa- family's economic status, or their race and or ethnicity uh, or gender. And so uh, back in 2016, to actually 2015, uh, we, after a lot of conversations in the community, uh, responded to that by like developing a North Star that's about creating a greater degree of racial equity and economic inclusion in the region. Uh, but to answer your question more directly, there is a, a lot more room uh, for a lot more philanthropy and a lot more philanthropy that is really guided by the interests, the aspirations, the hopes and the wisdom, frankly, that comes from the communities that we're serving. Uh, and so, um, you know, we hope to be a vehicle, continue to be a vehicle for that. But there is uh, you can do that kind of activity in the Bay Area without without being a donor at the San Francisco yeah. Foundation. too. Yeah. You know, this your background is interesting for someone who, you know, is running a, a major foundation. You came out of really in, in activist family. People may uh, know your mother as well, Angela Glover Blackwell. Um, how, do, how have you seen, you know, the foundation world as part of that movement, which, uh, you know, I feel like there's maybe a complex relationship there. There is definitely a complex uh, relationship. I, I, some would say, that many of the problems, actually, that we're trying to respond to, especially when it comes to equity and economic inclusion, uh, come about as a result of the kind of large amounts of wealth that have been generated that have created philanthropy. Uh, and so that is a it's definitely a, a part of who we are. Uh, we try to have an analysis that acknowledges that, but doesn't kind of perpetuate uh, that as well. Um But, you know, philanthropy has also been really important towards establishing a lot of key institutions in the Bay Area. You talked about the fact that we were seed funders uh, to KQED. Um, There are a lot of things that have been happening in philanthropy uh, that really kind of push the envelope, I think, around the Mm -hmm. kind of community change that needs to happen. Uh, We're a part of a group of philanthropic institutions that started the California Black Freedom Fund, uh, which is a fund based in California that is, and it's at the Silicon Valley Community Foundation that really tries to uh, advance uh, 
investment in Black-led organizations that are pursuing power-building strategies towards transformative change. Uh, We also are supporters of the Latino Power Fund, which is housed at the Latino Community Foundation, which is really about the same kind of effort at at, uh, at focused in on Latino communities. And so um, while the the relationship is a complex one. I think that you can find a lot of philanthropic institutions that are really trying to disrupt the status quo uh, and to advance equity in a real way and support organizations on the ground uh, that are doing that work in really authentic ways. Yeah. I was also um, struck in the organization's history that, you know, through the 1970s, the San Francisco Foundation was the largest funder of, you know, LGBTQ plus organizations in the in the country. Yeah. Um, You know, that is an example of the kinds of things that the San Francisco Foundation has been involved in uh, over the years since its founding. And one of the reasons, frankly, that I was um, attracted to it uh, as a uh, a place to work. I um I wasn't just looking to be at any uh, foundation. Uh, I was very specifically interested in the San Francisco Foundation because of its social justice roots um, and its regional focus. Uh, and so you're right. In the 70s, we were very much focused on LGBTQ issues. Um, in the um, I would say late early late 90s, early 2000s, San Francisco Foundation was at the forefront of promoting and supporting marriage equality. Um, We have not been shy about uh, stepping out on uh, controversial issues. We were, like I said, we drew a line in the sand around racial equity and economic inclusion well before uh, the racial reckoning and Mm -hmm. uh, some of the things that were happening that that pushed others into Mm -hmm. uh, this direction. And so, you know, the San Francisco Foundation has always been a social justice-oriented institution that hasn't been afraid to step into some thorny issues when they thought that it was right to do so. We're talking about the role of philanthropy in the Bay Area with Fred Blackwell, CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. Today's also Giving Tuesday. You may have heard from every single nonprofit that you know. <laughs> uh, our number is 866-733-6786. We'd love to hear from you about what role you think philanthropy, philanthropy should play in addressing the Bay's challenges. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today is Giving Tuesday, and we're talking about the role of philanthropy in the Bay Area with Fred Blackwell, CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. 
Love to hear from you. If philanthropy has played a role in your life, do you benefit from programs? Do you donate money to organizations? The number is 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. Of course, you can find us on our digital community on Discord. It was great to see some of you last night at our meetup. You can go to kqed.org slash forum to uh, sign up there. So I want to ask you, Fred, about, you know, some of the key issues that have affected the Bay Area, kind of starting with, you know, wage stagnation at a time, you know, for most at a time of, you know, vast creation of wealth at the top. We have these organizations which are kind of dependent on that wealth creation, as you were referencing in our first segment. Mm-hmm. Should fully, I mean, what, what, how big of a role should philanthropy play as a vehicle for wealth redistribution? Or is it, you know, is it part of the problem by offering kind of a moral solve for people who've made kind of enormous sums of money? You know, um, when I was hired at the San Francisco Foundation, um, there's a guy named Bob Friedman. Uh, actually, David Friedman, his brother, uh, who was on the board at the time, uh, he's a part of the uh, the search committee. And David is actually the the grandson of Daniel Koshlin, who I mentioned a little uh-huh. bit earlier. Uh, and he told me, uh, when you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation. Uh, and I start with that because um, there are definitely uh, philanthropies and foundations uh, that I would say uh, are part of the problem uh, that are. Um, isolated, uh, very far away from the issues that they're trying to solve, um, think that they know everything because they are proximate to the money. Uh, and But there are also um, foundations that are um, very humble about the work, um, are grounded in the, the communities that they are working in, uh, that are seeking community-driven solutions to uh, the problems that they're trying to uh, address. And so, you know, just like every other issue, other kinds of institutions or sectors, uh, it's hard to to paint a, a brush uh, that r- kind of characterizes uh, everything that's going on. Uh, however, I will say um, that there are also different ways to engage in, in philanthropy. Uh, and uh, for many, uh, like the jewel in the crown uh, in terms of philanthropy is, and you described a little bit of this, um, the identification and support of programs and services that are really operating well in a, at a high level of scale so they're serving a lot of people. Um, and I think that those kinds of programs and services are actually really important and at the same time insufficient. Uh, and that if we're really trying to solve community problems at a level of scale that matters, we can't only focus in on programs and services. We have to uh, engage in policy and systems work uh, and the advocacy that is necessary in order to make those changges. The, the analogy that I would use and I, that I use a lot is that if you're standing on the shores of a river, uh, and you see babies coming down that river, of course you have to k- pluck them out. But at some point, you got to ask the question how these babies are getting in the river. Yeah, right. uh, and programs and services are actually plucking babies out of the river. But policy work, advocacy work to move policy, systems work, is really about asking the question how these babies are getting here. And I think that the 
the philanthropic institution of the future and the one that is being a part of the solution rather than the problem are the ones that are able to balance those things uh, and also do both of those things in ways that really incorporate the wisdom of community. Uh, and there are philanthropies that are doing that, but there are also some that are not. And I think that to the degree that um, uh, there are large numbers that are isolated and in an ivory tower, we need to change that. Yeah. I mean, there have, there have been these big... Um, big books kind of questioning mm-hmm. the role of philanthropy. Rob Reich, um, you know, down at Stanford, wrote Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing and How It Can Do Better. I bet you know each other. Mm-hmm. Anand Girdadas, you know, wrote Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. I mean, there's been so much criticism that Beth Breeze wrote in defense of philanthropy. So when you read the critiques, what, do, what have you been able to take in to the San Francisco Foundation from people who are saying, you know, this isn't the way? Yeah. Um, when I read the critiques and I, from the seat that I sit at the San Francisco Foundation, it feels like a critique of somebody else. <laughs> I, I got to tell you. Um, and, and I'll explain uh, why that is uh, right now. Uh, you know, I mentioned Daniel Koshlin, uh, who was the founder of the San Francisco Foundation. Daniel Koshlin could have easily set up a, fa- a family foundation when he passed away, but he left uh, a significant portion of his philanthropic dollars to start something called the Koshlin Civic Unity Award at the San Francisco Foundation. Okay. What it does is it identifies neighborhoods in the Bay Area to work in for five years at a time. Uh, and before even doing anything, uh, the leader of that work, a woman named Retha Robinson, who's been at the foundation for many years, literally makes calls for about a year uh, to talk to community leaders, to talk to residents in the neighborhood, to ask them who are the formal, informal leaders in the neighborhood? Uh, what are they doing? How can we support them? And through that, she identifies uh, a cohort of folks that we call Koshland Fellows. And then those Koshlin Fellows, the people who are from those neighborhoods, guide the work uh, of the foundation in those neighborhoods for those five-year increments. It is so community-driven that if they don't do anything, nothing happens and no money gets spent. We have another program that is called the FACE Initiative, or FACE Program, that stands for Foundation Alliance with Interfaith to Heal Society. It's all about the role that churches and synagogues and congregations and mosques play in community development and community service, driven the same way. If nothing, they don't do anything, nothing happens. I say those, I, I lift up those two examples as, as examples of how philanth- where philanthropy done right guided in the right way, connected to community in the right way, can absolutely uh, be good. And when I read the critiques of folks like Robert Reich and others, I don't see uh, examples like the ones I just described being mentioned as like the wrong form of philanthropy. So when I read those critiques, uh, it is a it is a wake-up call. Uh, it is a reminder not to fall into... Uh, the the notion that because, like I said before, if we're proximate to the money, uh, we're you know, smarter than somebody else. Right. Uh, we're in service to the community, uh, and I think that that is a an important part of um, how effective philanthropy can get done. Uh, and I don't um, disagree with a lot of the critiques that are out there of a lot of approaches to philanthropy because a lot of what we're seeing uh, in some of these institutions is the. Um, sometimes the hoarding of resources. Uh, and then once you have those resources saying, I know better than everybody else uh, what needs to happen in community. And I, I think, frankly, that's the wrong approach to philanthropy. Yeah. 
Let's bring in uh, caller Adrian in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi there. Nice to talk to you guys. Um, I started San Francisco CASA, the Child Advocate Program, back in 91. I was one of two founders. And our first donor was the San Francisco Foundation. Our site visit, he said, you need to double the amount of time you're giving yourself and have the goal, cut in half the goal that you're aiming for. And all these years later, I realized this person was right. I have a different question now. Um, I have been a donor. We've started a small family foundation. We give away not a lot of money, but some money every year. Um, I have a pot of money that I have put with a foundation that's really not doing what I want, and I intend to take it out. And I'm looking to invest in um, low-income housing Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. And everyone that I talk to pats me on the head as if my money is not enough, nobody's doing this, it's too hard, Uh, why don't you buy some property and rent it cheaply? I mean, come on. Hmm. And I wonder if it helps. That's really, that's interesting. Um, And in part, Adrian, I'm just going to provide a little context. You know, I know you were the head of, you know, San Francisco Redevelopment, worked on Hope SF. Uh, San Francisco Foundation was also a a part of starting Bridge Housing. Um, So from your perspective, um, let's first answer Adrian's question about sort of where, where one can best help generate more low-income housing or support uh, people in low-income housing uh, in a foundation sense. And let's talk more generally about affordable housing. Yeah. um, You know, for somebody who is uh, interested in affordable housing and uh, addressing uh, homelessness and displacement and um, housing insecurity, there are all kinds of investments uh, that you can make. Um, Some are in um, uh, investing in nonprofit affordable housing developers. We have a, a very... Uh, diverse uh, and effective array of nonprofit housing developers that are developing affordable housing. And it isn't always just about putting money into the bricks and mortar. These organizations need operating support in order to do their jobs well. And so there are instances where small investments can go a long way uh, in that regard. Uh, There are also an array of really effective tenant protection advocacy uh, and support organizations in the Bay Area where you can invest in making sure that people who are currently in their Mm -hmm. homes can stay in their homes. Mm -hmm. and that they have access to information and legal support in order to fight uh, unfair evictions and things like that. I would recommend uh, looking at those kinds of organizations. And I would recommend, uh, you know, teaming up with other people uh, to who are also interested in housing issues and making investments in uh, policy and advocacy to uh, change the the regulatory environment so more housing can be built. Uh, this issue of housing, and I really appreciate the caller uh, bringing it up, is I think one of the most important equity issues uh, in the Bay Area uh, at this time and just one of the most important issues in general. If you are a corporation in the Bay Area, uh, the cost of housing is a recruitment problem. Uh, If you are a middle-income housing or a middle-income person in the Bay Area, the cost of housing is eroding your purchasing power and your ability to do other things and and generate wealth and and economic mobility. And if you are an extremely low-income person uh, in the Bay Area, uh, the cost of housing uh, is limiting your access to housing. It sometimes puts you in a place where you are in dilapidated housing and unsafe housing. And in the worst instance, you end up in the street because you can't afford 
afford this. So housing is a very important issue, and we have pushed all of our chips into the middle of the table around uh, housing issues. Um, we su- Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really interesting question, though, because, you know, how much can any foundation do around this crisis? Like, what is, is there a special role that your money can play? Or is it that the government needs to, like, government is where the scale for this really comes from, right? Both. Uh, yeah. The answer to that question is both and. <laughs> um, so... One of the things that we are focused in on right now that we are extremely excited about uh, are two things that will be on the ballot in in 2024. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're doing this in coalition with a broad array of This is more why the babies are coming down the river. That's right. right? Uh, Why the babies are coming down the river. And we're working with uh, Enterprise and LISC and nonprofit housing developers and uh, NPH and and, and others. And basically what we are doing is we are going to go to voters uh, on a regional level of scale uh, to say we need to do a regional level affordable housing bond Mm -hmm. uh, to get more public money into the funding stream. We think that uh, 10 to 20 billion dollars of of money can be uh, generated regionally if we pass that bond. And we think it's a, a, a game changer in some ways to get that level of support. Uh, and that comes on the heels of the first time establishment of a regional housing financing agency mm-hmm. that's serving the Bay Area. It's called uh, BAFA, the Bay Area Housing Financing Agency, which was, was a result of a lot of advocacy and organizing and planning and strategizing and ultimate uh, approval in Sacramento to get it started. But at the same time that we're doing both of those things, we are working with the same coalition uh, to do a statewide ballot measure to bring the voter approval threshold for affordable housing bond measures locally down from the current two thirds to 55%, which is what housing bonds are, which we think if that passes, hundreds of billions of dollars could be unlocked statewide for affordable housing. Uh, And so the reason why I say it's a both and is because you are absolutely right. The scale at which we need to build affordable housing in the Bay Area can only be achieved through public subsidies and the government really stepping up. Uh, But there are things that philanthropy can do, that nonprofits can do, that lay people can do to make that happen, to put pressure on uh, legislators and city councils and and boards of supervisors to do the right thing and invest uh, in housing, but also to create a regulatory environment so it's not so hard to build housing once we get that money freed up. That's a huge part of the the problem. I mean, it's... um, the regulatory environment is making it more expensive, more costly, take longer for us to uh, develop housing. And so philanthropy can be an important part of kind of laying that groundwork for that to happen. I'll give one more example of why, how we became so focused in on this. You know, back when we were um, doing this in 2016, uh, one unit of affordable housing cost about five to six hundred thousand dollars. Hmm. Uh, and so we could have spent five or six hundred thousand dollars to, um, you know, produce one unit of affordable housing. But what we've done instead is for that same amount of money, we can do the polling, the research, support the yes on campaigns to do affordable housing bonds where we can unlock hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for affordable housing. So this is also how it's important to be strategic about philanthropy. Hmm. Um, you know what? Sitting in your position Seeing what all these nonprofits can do here in the Bay Area, what do you think the most effective strategies have been for helping people who are living on the street get into 
uh, into housing. Mm. So, you know, the the most effective ways to um, get people off the street into housing is to have safe housing, uh, affordable housing, safe and affordable housing for those folks um, that don't uh, constrain their movements and their ability to live just like everybody else can live. Um, you know, when I was at the redevelopment agency and before that was at the uh, the Department of Community Development in San Francisco, I actually met uh, a lot of folks who were unhoused. Uh, and uh, for them, it was very simple. I just need uh, an affordable place to lay my head down. Uh, in a place that is safe for me or my family. Uh, and I need also, though, the flip side of that, a sustainable income uh, to be able to support mm. that lifestyle. So I, I think that that is uh, important. But the other thing that I would say is that it is infinitely um, less complicated and a lot less expensive to keep somebody in their home and prevent them from becoming homeless. Uh, than it is to try to respond to them once they have become homeless. Uh, and so I, I really encourage people who are really thinking about this issue not to uh, abandon the, the shelters. It is important to support the shelter system. It is important to support uh, supportive housing for folks who are formerly homeless or unhoused. But it is equally important to do everything that we can to keep people who are in danger of being evicted, in danger of being displaced, in danger of becoming homeless, to stabilize their housing first. Because like I said, it's cheaper and it's more simple to do so. Yeah. We're talking about the role of philanthropy in the Bay Area with Fred Blackwell, CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. One reason we're talking about all this today is that it is Giving Tuesday, which you may have heard about. It's a global campaign to promote generosity. Nonprofits come to you, ask for your support. Uh, we also just want to note that the San Francisco Foundation has provided uh, funding to KQD, both when it started and is currently uh, a sponsor um, there also should note their financial support of KQED didn't factor into our editorial decision to uh, to have this show. An important uh, distinction. Do you have an experience with philanthropy here in the Bay Area? Has it played a role in your life, either as a, a donor or someone who's funded by foundations? What do you what role do you think philanthropy should play in addressing the Bay's big challenges? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can also find our digital community on Discord. You can go to kqed.org slash forum to figure out how to sign up. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the role of philanthropy in the Bay Area. Joined by Fred Blackwell, who's CEO of the San Francisco Foundations, their uh, 75th uh, anniversary this year. We've, uh, we've actually, you know, a caller is on the line that we, in fact, referenced earlier. Um, Rob Reich uh, in Redwood City. Welcome. Hey there. Great to be on the show. And uh, thanks a lot, Fred, for talking about uh, Giving Tuesday and the, the work of the foundation up in San Francisco. Hey, Rob. Um, and thanks, thanks, Alexis, for the shout out about the, the book Just Giving. So, you know, one of the things which I wanted to just throw into the conversation here is that I'm, I'm part of the small group of folks that got Giving Tuesday started um, a little over 10 years ago. And, you know, today's the day. Um, uh, all the kinds of things that are flooding your in-mail, email boxes. Uh, are, thanks a lot, are, Rob. You know, thanks a lot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right, right, exactly. A mixed blessing, perhaps. But, um, um, you know, the important thing here is that the kinds of anxieties and criticisms that, that I have about big philanthropy, um, Giving Tuesday is a big counterweight to that. The mm-hmm. idea that this is a way to champion the ordinary giver working within their own communities in some of the same ways that Fred was talking about with the foundation. And I just wanted to, to, to make sure that, you know, everyone feels like they can contribute um, the kind of power of big philanthropy is best counterbalanced by the ordinary voices of donors. And I'd love to hear Rob, wait, is, from, is from the... Fred if he's willing to talk about how, how, the, how the foundation champions the ordinary donor, the small ball. Giver. Well, Rob, I, um, yeah. So important. Do you think that's so important because it changes the priorities of foundations if the, you know, if they have a broad base of financial support rather than just a few huge donors? Is that the idea? Exactly. It, 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 it diffuses the, the authority, the kind of power that rests in the foundation, the kind of really bizarre deference we give to large donors <laughs> simply in virtue of showing up and, and offering us some cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, Rob. I mean, you know, Fred, $10,000, which is, as I understand it, kind of the, the, the lowest level of, of donor within the San Francisco Foundation kind of framework, that's still a lot of money for yeah. regular people. I mean, I think most studies show, right, like half the people can't, half the people in the United States don't have $600. Um, so that's still a, um, a certain level of wealth. That's but right. Relative to what, I guess, is kind of what Rob's, Rob's point. It could be relative to, you know, $100 million. That's right. Um, Rob's point is excellent, uh, by the way. Um, the way that philanthropy can be most effective is when we're all engaged in it. Uh, and I think that the, on the one hand, uh, it is great uh, that uh, people with high wealth, high levels of wealth, are giving back through philanthropy and doing it in visible ways. On the other hand, what it does uh, is that, and I'm sure Rob would probably agree with this, it sends the message that you have to be rich to engage in philanthropy, uh, which is far from the case. Uh, and I think it is really important uh, to democratize uh, philanthropy and to have a wide range of people um, engaged in philanthropy to to not just level the playing field, but to also make sure uh, 
um, that the kinds of things that are being supported through philanthropy uh, are things that are um, not just the the big ideas uh, in the interest of people who have wealth, but the big ideas in the interest of people uh, who are ordinary citizens who see these problems on a day-to-day basis and who are proximate uh, to those problems. And so uh, I think that it is important to have a wide range of vehicles for philanthropy. And, you know, I've talked a lot about donor-advised funds and uh, family foundations as well, but there are other things that are happening as well. Uh, You know, we are uh, seed funders at the Latino Community Foundation, and one of the things that they do that I think is fabulous uh, and field-leading is giving circles, uh, where people are uh, pooling uh, small resources that turn into larger pooled resources, uh, and they make decisions together. Uh, about the kinds of things that they want to support. Uh, And, you know, people, we've seen uh, things like GoFundMe and all those kinds of things that are are mushrooming as well. I think all of those are needed in the philanthropic uh, ecosystem. And I think that uh, when we have everybody engaged in that way, we will have a better, more effective, more impactful philanthropic ecosystem. And I think it's really important for for us to do that. If we just leave philanthropy uh, up to the super wealthy, we will not get the outcomes that we're looking for from that philanthropy. I have to say, sometimes looking at GoFundMe, though, makes me just wish we had a functioning social safety net. You know, I wish people weren't fundraising to, like, fix a tooth or, Mm -hmm. you know, stave off homelessness. Mm -hmm. Uh, You wish there were homes and, you know, Mm -hmm. cheaper dental care. Um, Yeah. uh, One other thing I would say, um, just if I would be remiss if I didn't say this, $10,000 is a threshold, but that doesn't have to come from one individual. Uh, Like, families can pool their resources and and do that $10,000. It is a wonderful uh, family thing to do, to get together maybe annually and say, this is what we're going to do with our the money that we pulled as a family or a group of friends or things like that. So I don't want people to think that I have to have, you know, $10,000 of my own money uh, to do this. People, companies have matching uh, opportunities as well. You can use that to create a fund. So, uh, you know, there are different ways to engage in this. Yeah. Um, uh, listener Martino wants to know, uh, I'd love to know, Shreds, about the San Francisco Foundation's choice to award California Creative Core funds to organizations rather than directly to artists and what they're kind of hoping artists will contribute to the civic life of the Bay Area. Yeah, so the uh, Creative Core is something um, uh, that was uh, established a while ago with state funds that were uh, contributed to the San Francisco Foundation. And it's really about Um, what I would describe as the different ways that arts and culture uh, can actually produce community change and uh, and impact community. Uh, You know, there are ways that small arts organizations and culture organizations that are really important part of the fabric and culture of community. Uh, I often talk about the fact that uh, you will seldom find a movement uh, in this country that doesn't have a soundtrack associated with it, and that's all about Uh, arts and culture. And so this culture core is about building up uh, a core of these folks who really believe in the role of arts and culture and community development and community transformation and supporting those institutions. Uh, And, you know, the 
the decision to answer the caller directly to support organizations rather than individual artists is really a function of who we are as an institution and the way we're set up structurally. We're set up uh, to support organizations, and those organizations end up supporting individual artists as well. Um, but what's happening through there is this really important synergy is being cultivated between um, folks who aren't necessarily arts and culture organizations. They're like direct service groups are providing programs, but they're now being paired up with arts and culture organizations to really infuse uh, what I would say the soul uh, into uh, what's happening. You know, I, I'd have to give a shout out to Issa Lama, who is the staff person uh, on our staff who's leading that work and I think really doing a great job at it. Uh, let's bring in uh, Sina in Berkeley, uh, who runs a nonprofit. Welcome, Sina. Good morning. I'm calling to amplify the uh, guest voice about you don't have to be rich to help a nonprofit. I run a tiny nonprofit that I founded out of passion, and I knew nothing <laughs> 12 years ago. And now I have a program that's serving 1,600 children every month. And I used to feel like my $25, $30, $50 donations, you know, they're not really helping. But then in my fourth or fifth year, I added up in my my organization, how much do all of those small donations add up to? Tell you what, they add up to a really significant part of our budget. Mm-hmm. So please don't stop giving little donations. And also, I really, I really appreciate and enjoy the show. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, just one point to amplify what she just said. Those 25, those 30, those 40, those $50, $100 donations that she, she, she says add up. Mm-hmm. Guess what? They also don't come with intense reporting requirements and things like that where you have to have a staff person that's reporting on the money that you got. (laughs) Uh, And so, like, this is a really important uh, dimension of philanthropy that I think is uh, underappreciated. You know, Sandra writes in to say, you know, could you speak to the lawsuit regarding the Buck Fund? I was living in the Bay Area during that period, and I was shocked to see someone's intentions for leaving their money could be overturned by a lawsuit. Still bothers me as an affected uh, my giving. My understanding of this was that the that this money was left. It grew uh, enormously, and the San Francisco Foundation wanted to spread it beyond Marin County. It was intended to be for Marin County, and the initial uh, donor be- bequest, and uh, but maybe you can take it from there. Yeah, you you've got the story uh, basically right. Um, uh, this was a bequest that started off as a small stock uh, bequest. Uh, the stock did well uh, and did really, really well. Um, and when the bequest was given, uh, it was designated to support Marin County. Uh, and it, the, the Buck family, that's why it's called the Buck Trust, was the part of it. Um, when it mushroomed and became extremely valuable, um, there were members of the Bay Area community that put a lot of pressure on the San Francisco Foundation at the time to petition the courts to get relief from the restriction to Marin County because the perception was that uh, Marin County was this the most wealthy county in the region and there wasn't enough need for this huge trust um, to be able to support and that and there were needs throughout the Bay Area that were more intense than what the needs were uh, in Marin. And so, uh, like I said, there was pressure put on the um, the foundation to petition the courts. The San Francisco Foundation ultimately did that, lost that petition, uh, and the trust was actually moved to 
to Marin and was the the um, genesis of the establishment of the Marin Community Foundation. Hmm. Uh, it was a really important case in uh, donor intent uh, and bequests and how folks uh, deal with that. And I would say um, probably not something that uh, would happen again. Uh, for a variety of reasons. One is nowadays, if we get a big stock gift uh, at the San Francisco Foundation, we liquidate it almost immediately and turn it into cash so we can, uh, you know, distribute it for grant making. And so that that notion of kind of holding on to a stock and it growing uh, like that exponentially over time is not something that would uh, likely happen. We also have a, a committee inside the uh, foundation now that really closely examines uh, those kinds of restrictions that are on trust and bequest and make sure that we are uh, adhering to it. But uh, I would say the last thing I would mention on this is I think one of our probably miscalculations at the time was that there wasn't enough need in Marin County. Uh, you know, we know now that there are places like, and we knew it then, there are places like Marin City, the Canal area, uh, mm-hmm. that could really use that support and, the, and that the Buck Trust is supporting now and the Marin Community Foundation is supporting now. So I think another part mm-hmm. of the miscalculation is to uh, assume that just because a county uh, is wealthy, that there aren't pockets uh, that could really use that kind uh, of support. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a a big moment for the San Francisco Foundation, and we learned a lot from it. Yeah. Let's bring in Edward in Oakland. Welcome, Edward. Hi there. Uh, thanks for this show. I just wanted to say that I am the, the PTA president at Emerson Elementary here in Oakland, California, and we are a recipient of San Francisco Foundation funds. Uh, they support our PTA and helps us support our Title I school here in uh, Oakland. Um, but one thing I did want to do is just echo the host sentiment of um, the just wishing we were fully funded as like just a public right. education structure, right. so we didn't have to rely on um, you know foundations like this to sort of make it so that we're able to have an arts program or you know just fill in the gaps that that exist. Um, yeah. I'll take. Right. No, I appreciate that. You You know, uh, Edward, I appreciate that, that sentiments. Um, You know, it, it it would be better, right? If the government fully funded every school so that kids across a city like Oakland would have equal access to resources, Mm -hmm. like just period. But also we live in this world and that's where you guys come in. Yeah. um, This is where, what I talked about earlier, balancing um, programs and services with policy advocacy and systems is really, really important. Um, philanthropy, and I should be really clear about this, cannot supplant public dollars. Um, we don't have, we can't do it at the scale that local government or county government or state government or federal government can, uh, and it's not a sustainable uh, funding source. So it is uh, really, really important for us and other philanthropies to partner with uh, local government. We also can be um, R&D. We can experiment with things and do things that, uh, um, that you know, you might be not be able to do. In the government context. Yeah, um, in, in the government context, like you said. Uh, and so there are lots of ways to partner. But I think there is this misconception sometimes uh, that philanthropy can fill the holes uh, mm-hmm. and fill the gaps and, mm-hmm. and supplant the, the public yeah. dollars. And just to give you an example around health uh, in the state of California, we have some of the largest health foundations uh, in the country. 
uh, in California. We've got the California Wellness Foundation. Uh, we've got the, uh, we've got the California Endowment. Yeah. Uh, we've got a, a, a number of them. And I would imagine if you add up what those health-related foundations spend statewide, it's probably less than what the county health department spends in San Francisco. Right, and. right. right. So they've got it. I mean, I've talked with Tony Eitan over at the California Endowment. I think what they're trying to do is, right, yeah, establish the pilot programs, demonstrate these things can work, and then hopefully get those pushed into policy. A um, mm-hmm. couple, uh, couple comments uh, for you here. Um, Irene writes, I'm a homeowner and preparing my living trust. Mm. I want to leave the proceeds of my home in Richmond, California, to a program that supports policy and developments that increase the access of low-income people to homeownership, especially for the families of soldiers denied GI Bill support for home buying after World War II. This is such a well-thought-out plan. Mm-hmm. What what foundation could you suggest that could help with something like that? Mm. Um, I would se- suggest you call Pamela Doherty at the San Francisco Foundation. <laughs> um, she uh, can can help you build that out. Uh, we have a number of donors at the foundation who have set up uh, things similar to that. So uh, they've set up bequests to support, you know, one or two organizations in perpetuity to set up their endowment. Uh, they have uh, left bequests to, to establish, you know, programs to support um, homelessness in Alameda County. Uh, so we, we've got a staff that can help folks like that. Other community foundations do. That is the kind of thing that a community foundation specializes in and helping uh, somebody realize a, a philanthropic goal like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd also just give a shout out because we've had folks on recently, uh, you know, with the land trust uh, in the East Bay, East yeah. Bay Permanent Real Estate Collective. There's a bunch of people working on this that I'm sure uh, would be extremely uh, delighted to, uh, to talk with you. Um, another listener writes in, I remember Fred from his time in Oakland because he helped me one evening after a city council meeting. I had a question, asked four city staff members, and no one provided assistance. Fred happened to see me, asked if he could help. I remember thinking from all the things I heard in the news, he had vision and direction. Glad to know Fred is using his leadership skills at the at the foundation. So nice, a nice <laughs> shout out for you here. Um, uh, you know, Fred, um, we are here at the, the end of the hour. Are you going to participate in Giving Tuesday today yourself? Oh, man, that, that's a great question and a good reminder. Uh, yes, uh, I have a, a, my own kind of set of uh, favorite organizations that uh, I support outside of the San Francisco Foundation. I have my own donor advised fund uh, at the San Francisco Foundation. So, yes, I su- plan to su- support some folks today as well. Getting ready. Yeah. We have been talking about the role of philanthropy in the Bay Area with Fred Blackwell, CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. It's celebrating its 75th anniversary uh, this year. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Also, in case you're wondering, yes, the San Francisco Foundation has provided funding uh, when KQED started and is currently one of our sponsors and their financial support of KQED did not factor into our editorial decisions. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.